Welcome to the Confident Retirement Podcast. Is doing the most important things alone a good idea? How comfy are you with your choices when it comes to life's biggest decisions? What is real peace of mind with financial confidence and how can you get it? Chris Fleming and Mark Peachy are the founders of LPF Advisors in Sarasota, Florida. On the show, they bring together the best and brightest minds to share with you how to have a more confident financial picture. They empower listeners with simple, common sense and financial wisdom. And now, here are your hosts from LPF Advisors. Hey, I want to welcome everybody to the Confident Retirement Podcast brought to you by LPF Advisors. I'm your host, Chris Flaming, and today I have the pleasure of welcoming Randy Fox, the founder of Two Hawks Consulting, to the show. He is a nationally known wealth strategist, philanthropic estate planner, educator, and speaker. Randy is also the editor-in-chief of Plan Giving Design Center, a newsletter and website for philanthropic advisors. Randy, thanks for being here and welcome to the show. Chris, uh, thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're going to have fun. So uh, I think you have a pretty interesting history. Can you take me through that and what led you to where you are today? Well, I started life, I guess, my second real career in my life in 1984 as a financial advisor. And actually, I partnered up with a guy who I went to high school with who just coincidentally had run into his mother uh, in my family's restaurant. And I said, gee, what's my what's my old classmate doing? She said, "Ah, I don't know. I think he's like a financial planner or something or other. And I said, well, that sounds interesting. And we ended up having dinner. And I said, well, you know, I was I was smarter than him in high school. I could do this too. Uh, And I ended up uh, with, um, at that time, a wife and one and a three-year-old quitting my job uh, and going into his office with another partner uh, and uh, becoming a financial planner. Uh, And for a dozen years or so, I was a typical retail financial planner, uh, charged fees to do written plans, uh, helped implement those plans, on and on and on. And I I got kind of bored with that. Um, I always wanted to learn more, do more, be more. And along, uh, right after the 1986 Tax Act, uh, when they took away all the kind of favorite tax shelters that many clients were using, uh, we read about a program that was offered by a company called Renaissance down in Indianapolis to learn about charitable planning. Uh, and my two partners said, we don't want to go, you go. And I did. Uh, And kind of that changed everything uh, because I learned how to use some of the charitable planning tools, specifically then the charitable remainder trust. Uh, But I realized that I had become kind of a specialized one trick pony. Uh, So I set off learning the rest of estate planning, traveling around the country to every advanced estate planning seminar I could get and every advanced charitable planning program I could take. uh, And lo and behold, started a a business with a attorney partner uh, that did planning for other advisors around the country. So we would get called in when the advisors who, you know, whose typical client was a million dollar client or $3 million client came in contact with a 10 or $20 million client and had no idea what to do. Uh, and so, you know, that kind of evolved to where I am today. But, okay. Yeah. So they were in kind of, they felt like they might be in over their head and they needed some, <laughs> somebody who had background and knowledge in that. I always used to use the analogy, you know, they were like the dog chasing the fire truck and eventually they caught the fire truck and they said, ah, now what do I do? 
Right, right. This thing's heavy. I keep <laughs> falling. Yeah, right. So if you could go back and tell your younger self, give your younger self advice, what do you wish that you knew then that you know now? Oh, everything. <laughs> uh, you know, I have made so many mistakes in my career. It's unfathomable. I've failed my way. You know, it's 35 years to become an overnight success. It just takes a long time and, you know, a lot of scrapes and bruises and mistakes. And I think, uh, you know, it's all been great experiences and some of them have been very painful along the way. Yeah. So what, what do you think kept you going? Like, what was your driving... I- I just always wanted to do what I'm doing, uh, and I pretty much try not to let anything get in my way. It's kind of like I have this vision about how planning should be, uh, and I don't see a lot of people doing it the way I'd like it to be done. And I, th- I think to myself, well, if I don't do it or if I don't set an example, who will? You know, that's it's kind of the, you know, I'm not one of those outspoken yell from the street corner leaders. Uh, I just want to do what I do uh, the best way I know how. Yeah. So let's get into some of the, the specialties that you have. What exactly, how you define it, what exactly is a wealth strategist? Well, I, I guess I'm not exactly sure what that term means. I, my, my belief is when I look at a Again, all of my all of my clients are other advisors, uh, so I don't have a retail practice. But when I look at a, a client matter for another advisor, I try to take the broadest overview possible and look at all of the parts. So instead of putting a Band-Aid on a wound, I want to know what caused the wound and how we can prevent the wound from happening in the future uh, and how we can you know make that wound heal and never come back. So I, I try to be very, very comprehensive in my approach. And I I like to use all of the tools that are available to us, uh, not just the couples that, you know, the couple of tools that I know how to use or are my favorites. Uh, What works for that client in those circumstances trying to get to this goal uh, is much more important to me than I know this widget. So is there a type of person or family that you think that can most benefit from philanthropic estate planning? Well, um, you know, if you look at statistically in the United States, uh, 68 or 69 percent of every American gives something to charity. Mm-hmm. The high net worth families give it a higher level, uh, 94, 95 percent, I think, according to the last study I read. Um, what they do, however, is they give inefficiently. Um, uh, most people write checks. Uh, they don't even give appreciated stocks. You know, uh, and so if we could just slow everybody down and back up and say, I know what you want to do. Let's find the best way to do this and let's see how it integrates into the whole picture of everything you're trying to do. Uh, I, we can be much more effective and impactful. And in fact, you know, one of the big issues that I always face is that people think that if we increase their charitable giving, we're going to take assets away from their heirs. And so there's this balancing act we have to do. And I always tell them that we're not disinheriting their heirs. We're going to disinherit the government. Mm -hmm. And given that choice, you know, would you rather have your money go to Washington or would you rather have it go to something else that you believe in who might be more efficient? Um, And once we can have that conversation, you know, it gets a little bit easier to to go further down that road. Okay. Yeah, I like that. Um, So I've heard the people use this term charitably inclined. Like they're charitably inclined. So I, I think I know what that means, but how do, how do you define that or, or interpret it? 
Well, it, it's interesting. You know, I think that terminology means a lot of different things. It, what's often told to me is I'll get somebody who they'll say, well, you know, he's a business owner, but he's not charitable. Well, okay. I'll bet that's not true. Um, if if my statistics are right, if 97% or 95% of high net worth families give to charity, uh, someone's charitably inclined. Again, what that usually means is they don't understand that they have a choice uh, and they can direct where some of their otherwise tax dollars would go. Mm -hmm. um, again, I think we as advisors just don't ask the right questions. Like someone should say, I'm not charitably inclined. You say, well, what do you mean by that? You, and what you'll find out is that same individual sponsors the local little league team. That same individual is on the board of his church. That same individual serves, you know, as the, in the Rotary or the Kiwanis or the Lions Club, but they're not charitable, right? <laughs> but they are, you know, deep down, yeah. you know, we are. Yeah. Well, and isn't that, isn't that a, I, I noticed that's a thing where it's that art of being able to ask questions. So many times we take client answers at face value and just move on and, and, and make uh, presumptions about that. We're not asking those additional questions to explore more, to get deeper, to, to find out if, is that really true? And that's where some breakthroughs can take place and you find out the person's different than what we might think. Absolutely. And, you know, I think advisors are in such a rush to prove their intelligence and to provide the solution uh, that they don't take the time to really question deeply. And, and if you're working with somebody who's got substantial wealth, uh, they're, you know, these are big decisions and you really have to understand who they are and what they're trying to accomplish. And the only way to do that is to ask and ask and ask, yeah. uh, because the clearer you get about what a family wants to do and half the time, they don't really know. You have to sort of, uh, you know, point them the right direction or say that if this, if you do this, this is kind of what the outcome is going to be. And if you do this, this is what the outcome is going to be. Um, they won't act unless they're really clear. I yeah. mean, they'll just not never do anything. And that's, right. you know, that's not a good result. Yeah. That's the uh, fear of making a big mistake, right? I just won't right. do anything. I'll just stick with the status quo. So that kind of touches on what do you think the, when you work with advisors with our clients, what are their biggest fears or concerns when it comes to philanthropy? You kind of touched on it, but what do you, what do you think? Well, I, I think there's a couple. Uh, one is, uh, first of all, I'm giving up control. Uh -huh. uh, second is, I'm disinheriting my children. Those are the two major ones. And three, uh, I've never heard of this before. No, you know, my 25-year attorney, my 32-year CPA, whatever it is, never told me about these things. Why didn't they tell me? And, you know, my, my typical answer to that, Chris, is I don't know why they didn't tell you. I, you know, I take it as my responsibility to be well-informed on these yeah, things. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> why don't you ask them? Yeah. Why don't, you know, <laughs> I, and I, don't, I, I try not to be that rude, yeah. but sometimes right. I am. Right. <laughs> so is there an area of your expertise that you get the most enjoyment from right now? So, well, you I, know, part of the strategy you use or the law that you're excited about or that you're... Well, you know, be, being, uh, let me answer this two different ways. Um, toward the end of last year, as, you know, a year of being locked in under COVID and uh, not me not being ready because I've worked from my home for 12 of the last 15 years. Uh, I'm, I'm used to this, but most advisors weren't prepared for it. So they had to kind of 
go home and set up and get ready. So early in the year last year was really quiet, and I started listening to a number of podcasts, uh, one of which was called 10X Talks with Dan, uh-huh. Sullivan, Dan, Dan yeah. Sullivan and Joe Polish, right? <laughs> and I was thinking to myself, well, what do I want a 10X, right? Uh, and I don't want to grow my business 10 times because I'm not young, uh, and I don't want to build a big infrastructure around me or any of the things that that would take. But I, I did look back over the last 35 years and realized that I had in conjunction with other advisors and working with the client base that I work with raised about a billion dollars for charity. So I thought that's what I want to 10X. So I started at the end of the year and I'm still building this out because I don't have a clue what it's going to look like uh, a movement called 10 billion for charity. So what, and I'm, I'm a child of the 60s. You can, I, I, was, I used to be a child in my 60s. So, you know, I, we were that group that wanted to change the world. And yeah. the only way that I think we can change the world is not by improving government. We know that isn't going to work. At least I don't think that's going to work. Right. I, I think the way we can do it is to allocate our dollars to causes that we believe in. So if I can help affect 10 billion in, in philanthropy before I quit, I think that's going to make a difference. You know, is that enough? Well, of course it's not, you know, but uh, you got to start someplace. If I get close, if I get close to 10 billion, I'm going to 10 X that. So. Okay. So, uh, you know, without sharing any client uh, particulars for confidentiality reasons, can you think of a really satisfying client experience that you had recently, the problems they were facing, Uh, what they were trying to do, how you were able to help them? Well, so this is, I love telling this story. And I, I was actually just uh, recently met this client for the first time. It was a total online relationship all of last year. But uh, an advisor in California brought me one of his clients who had been his client for 10 years. Client was an, he is a fifth generation member of a very successful family business, mm-hmm. has about a $25 million estate gets a dividend from the company stock of about $3 million a year uh, and had a living trust, period. End of story. Divorced, three kids, grown kids, great kids, all of that. No planning. And so we just, and he's a very simple guy. Um, uh, If you met him, you would think he might be your UPS driver, right? Not a sophisticated investor, just wanting to live his life and, you know, leave me alone. And we kind of brought him into the planning process very gradually, uh, introduced many new ideas and concepts. And again, he was, uh, you know, I don't want to say kicking and screaming, but at one point I do know he had a conversation with my colleague saying, why did I pay this guy this money? I don't want to do any of this stuff. Why am I here? Today, his plan is fully implemented. We have created one $5 million gift to charity Currently, we are doing a family meeting with his three children, Mm. uh, I think as early as next week, to go through the planning with them. And when I met him, he thanked me. So that to me is what this is really about. You know, it's really creating a difference. He'll pay no estate taxes when we're done. Uh, We've moved significant assets out of his estate. We've created liquidity to help purchase the family business shares that he owns Mm -hmm. so that they won't have to be sold off to pay estate taxes. And, you know, that's, that can be done for just about anybody. It just requires a lot of commitment. It took a year, but it should take a year, you know? Yeah. And that, that sincere thank you that you get at the end really is, that's what it's all about. 
from from someone who thinking that I'd taken his money for no reason to someone thanking me for getting it done and him feeling safe and settled and secure and not worrying anymore is, you know, that's, that's a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. So let's shift gears a little bit. Um, I'm curious, you have, you know, you have a lot of life experience. So what, what was your first memory with money or your I, first experience with money? Well, I growing up as a kid or uh, well, you know, it, it's it's interesting because, uh, you know, I had, my father was a successful entrepreneurial guy uh, who had started uh, any number of businesses and was a really good businessman, smart guy, uh, as was his father. As a matter of fact, I, everybody in my family is an entrepreneur. There are no, nobody's ever worked for anybody, basically. Um, and, you know, I didn't think much of it, but after my summer camps until I was 13, at 13, I went to work in his factory and I did scut jobs. You know, I was yeah. uh, helping unload trucks and working in the lab and doing all these things. And, you know, it, some of what I realized in doing that is I didn't want to do that. <laughs> you know, I, I wanted to be, I wanted to, I didn't want to get my hands dirty that much. I wanted to, to be, with my mind, I wanted to be able to think and interact with people on a on a more even-handed basis than it was, uh, you know, running some big industry somewhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think about my dad, the contractor in Nebraska, still is, and I worked for him in the summers, and I enjoyed that because, you know, back then what was important when you were a teenager was that you had some spending money and you were getting a tan, right? <laughs> that was the important thing, so yeah, and- it was good then, but my dad used to tell me, you know, this is to help you decide, would you like to do something like a trade? Um, for a living or do you want to have a business or do you want to work in something else? And that experience was so pivotal in me making decisions later about what I wanted to do. And I have a respect and I'm really honor the people that do that kind of work because it's hard on your body. And, you know, and um, so anybody that can have that experience, I think it's a, it's a big positive. Yeah. And I, I ended up coming back uh, after I left college and I did not graduate college. Uh, I ended up working in the family business and my uh, one of the family businesses, and I rotated through all the jobs from unloading trucks in the morning to we had a, a fairly large restaurant. I was a chef for two years. I was a bartender for two years. I mean, you know, I was doing the I was doing the everyday work. And I yeah. thought, you know, what I'm really best at is managing all these people. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I, I can get along with them and they'll listen to me. And, you know, I think I have pretty good ideas. And, uh, you know, I ended up running three enterprises at that point. We have something in common. We both bartended. I knew there was a connection. <laughs> there there it. it is. I there it, it is. I, I, can still, I, can, I can still make a Harvey Wallbanger. That's right. <laughs> All right. Who can do that? So are there any experiences that you feel like in your life that have made you keenly aware of either the positive or the negative effect of wealth? Right, because money can be both a, a positive or a negative thing. Yeah. Um, so, any experiences that you want to share? Oh yeah, I've you know again uh, very early in my career, I met a woman by the name of Jessie O'Neill who wrote the book The Golden Ghetto, and she actually was one of the people that uh, invented the term. Um, and I can't even think of what it is, so I'll come back to it. But you know, we I've explored the kind of positive and negatives of wealth, and have have witnessed it in many families. You know, families who don't want their kids to be entitled, but they already are. You know, I know families where you know they kids were raised wealthy and they were driven to school and a chauffeured limousine. Well, yeah. it's really hard to get them past the idea that they're special. 
you know, right. uh, uh, and parents who fly their kids first class. Well, now that the kids are out and they're working stiffs, they still want to fly first class and they, they can't realize that it's on them to earn the living, uh, to make the money to, to be, uh, to fly first class. Yeah. Yeah. That would be, that would be tough. <laughs> I had the first time I flew first class. I'm like, I wish I didn't have to go back. Yeah. Right. <laughs> So what would you say is your biggest life accomplishment so far? This could be personally or professionally or both. My biggest life accomplishment. I have yeah. two I have two really mature wonderful children and I don't I can't imagine how they got to be so brilliant and so, you know I I look around and I see other almost 40-year-olds and I think Gosh, I'm really lucky. My kids are settled. They're married well. They have beautiful families. They're great parents. I, what could I be happier about? Yeah, that's great. Now, I, want, I just thought of something. I want to go back on that question sure. we were talking about per, uh, previously with the entitled kids. So is there anything you think from a planning standpoint that parents or people can do you know, with the tactics that you use? to help deal with some of that um, from that entitlement standpoint or, or that, is there anything that can actually be done? Yes, I think there are. I think okay. there is. And I, and I actually, I'm glad you came back to it because the word is affluenza. Okay. Um, okay. And, and that's, that word has become kind of karma, common jargon and, you know, at least in the wealth advisor world. Yeah. Um, so one of the things that I believe, and there are actually some very uh, savvy longitudinal studies now is uh, to teach, and you can start this very, very young, maybe five, six years old, is to have your children give to charity on an annual basis and to have discussions about how fortunate your family is and how important it is not to give back because that it makes it sound like you took something. Right. And I think people who start businesses didn't take anything, they create things. Yeah. Uh, but how important it is to contribute in other ways to society, to things that are meaningful to you, and to have dialogue about that and let, at some point, the children pick their own charities and, and have them explain why they picked it. It might they be they give to the Humane Society because they just love animals, even though you don't have one. Right. Uh, you know, it, it's not about judging, and it's about identifying what you care about in the world and doing something about it. And it puts money in perspective. It allows you to see what the power of it is uh, and the good it can do, uh, but it, you're not spending it on yourself. And they, they have studied this, and families who actually gather around giving on a, on a sort of annual basis actually get along better and communicate better. Wow. Which, who doesn't want that with their children? You know, I've, right. I, I've said this recently to somebody else. You know, I've never met a family that says, you know, when my kids grow up, I don't want them to get along. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. I want them to never talk to each other and fight all the time. But yeah. that's, that's what a lot of parents create. And if we could help resolve that, it would make yeah. a huge difference. Yeah. Well, and it's that let's take the focus off of ourselves. Right. Let's put it on others right? You're not as important as you think. We're not as important as we think. Right. And when we can do that, then we're not thinking about our own needs. We're thinking about others' needs. That helps generally helps everybody get along when you're putting the other person first. Right. And it's, it's about balance, right? We don't have to give everything away and live. You know, we didn't take a vow of poverty. We've worked hard for what we have, yeah. but you know, our families, my, our families 
value system says we share what we have with important things in the world. I, I don't think there's anything the matter with that. No, I don't either. So if you weren't doing what you are doing now, Randy, what do you think you would be doing instead? Was there some career path that you thought you had growing up or some other aspiration or that you had? No, I don't know. That's a, that's a tough one. I mean, you know, I've often thought that if I ever retire, I might want to go teach on an Indian reservation or something okay. like that. Okay. But do I ever want to have be a teacher? I don't think so. But uh, there's just something about that that's always called to me as like serving someplace that's totally underserved, uh-huh. uh, but not a different career. I love what okay. I do. Okay. I just, I just, this is potentially so powerful and so much fun for me that mm-hmm. I, I just can't, I don't, I don't think in terms of what would be better. Yeah. Yeah. So outside of your practice, outside of the business that you have, uh, consulting that you do, what's something that you're really passionate about personally? Personally passionate about. Yeah. That's a, that's another good one. <laughs> You know, I'm, I try to keep myself fit, so I'm passionate about health and fitness. Uh-huh. I'm a pretty avid bike rider. I'm not a political person because I don't, I don't see a solution for me yeah. in that mix. So I, I stay out of that. Uh, you know, so I'm, I'm passionate about making the world a better place any way I can, I guess. Kind of general. I don't, I don't yeah. have this thing over there. Well, I think, I think probably if your passion is political in nature, regardless of what side you're on, you're probably, that's probably not a good pathway to happiness. No, no, that's not, a, that's not the path to happiness for me. Right, it, right. It, it just isn't. You've seen that. Okay. Is there a unique or interesting fact about you that very few people know? Well, here's one. You know, everybody wonders where the two hawks came from. Yeah. And I will tell you that I, and I've told this story before, uh, I apprenticed for five years with a Blackfoot medicine man. I was one of those kids. I grew up watching Westerns. I always liked the Indians better than the Cowboys. Yeah. I just thought they were much more, uh, their value system was much more in alignment with mine. And I had the opportunity to learn very traditional native spirituality practices, including, you know, the sacred pipe ceremony and the sweat lodge mm-hmm. ceremony and all those. And in fact, at one point was regularly leading sweat lodges and the, and the very first sweat lodge that I poured water for, as it's called, uh, two hawks were circling over the sweat lodge the entire time I was in there. So I said, okay, I got it. I'll use that. Uh, and that, that's became two hawks consulting. So. Wow. That's a, that's a cool story. All right. So I I was going to ask you about who you follow or read, and you mentioned the 10 X podcasting you, but you also are the editor in chief of that plan giving design center. So I think I'd rather have you talk a little bit about what that is and who it serves and what it does. Well, so the Plan Giving Design Center uh, is the largest single resource in the world, I believe, for scholarly articles about plan giving. So everybody who's anybody in the world of plan giving has written for us uh, historically uh, years after, year over year. There are 60 or 70,000 pages of content. Uh, from hundreds of different authors. Uh, and uh, right now, it's just, the website is just sitting there, you know, and all the articles are available to anybody who wants to read them. 
And it's a great knowledge base. It's a great place to learn things. So uh, we're in the process of reinventing it a little bit and rebranding it and, you know, bringing it out in a slightly newer, more modern fashion. Like all websites, it's old and kind of old and kind of stale. Uh, but, uh, you know, there's still a, a number of uh, visionary years ahead of it. Uh, and it's, again, as a resource for information about plan giving, there's nothing that, that's comparable to it in the world. Okay. What's that website? pgdc.com or you can just google plan giving design center if you google charitable remainder trust or charitable lead trust probably in the top one or two hits you'll get is always an art always an article on pgdc okay okay great what do you consider to be the the most exciting part of your work right now so biggest opportunity for your business well i think there's a really really first of all i think my 10 billion for charity movement or idea really can't be done by me. Uh, I think the only thing that will make it happen is a wholesale change in the conversation that advisors are having with their clients. And so the opportunity to have these deep and meaningful conversations with clients is there for all advisors. And it's certainly there for me. I, I bring a giving with every single family that I work with. And we always find a way that it, that it, either works for them or it doesn't. But if you don't have the conversation, you can never make it happen. And I think most advisors are afraid to have that conversation because they don't know how to do the nitty gritty planning. And again, the studies say that your clients don't care if you bring in an outsider. They just want the result. They don't care if you know everything. And so I'm trying to help change the conversation. And that's, that's really, I think, where all the opportunity is having better conversations with our high net worth clients. As part of your um, work that you do, is it coaching advisors on having those conversations, what to say, what questions to ask, how to approach it? I do the basics of that, but frankly, I work with people that are much better than that. You know, I, okay. I have a, a number of, uh, I'm very good friends with the folks at the Her- as a member of the Heritage Institute where mm-hmm. Rod, Rod Zeeb teaches, you know, these deep conversations. Uh, there are a number of other people that do it. Todd Fithian does it and a few others. It's just, you know, if you really want to get good at working with high wealth families, having the tools to have deep conversations with them is really, really important. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that, that's important in making any meaningful connection with somebody. Where yeah, it, it's such a hurry to gather assets and sell something as opposed to develop a long, long, long relationship. Yeah, you're, you're right. There's, a, there's definitely a rush to do that, which is sad, right? Because, you know, we look at our client relationships as these are people, these are relationships that we want to have for a very long period of time. And we want them to be able to, to talk to us about things that aren't necessarily financial related, but they're big life decisions, you know, that they're, that they're going to make. And if they want our opinion or our counsel, we want to be there for them. Exactly. My clients, even in my back in my retail practice, my clients would tell me everything about their families and what was going on. Right. You know, we never, we hardly ever talked about their planning yeah. after the first few right. meetings. It was yeah. like, you know, how are the kids yeah. and where are they going to college? Yeah. And, you know, yeah. where, where should I grab the money from? And all of those things. I often run into that thing where I'll meet with somebody and then at the end, the client says to me, well, I suppose you probably don't like being my psychologist. Or I don't know why I told you all that stuff, but it just came out. So I kind of look at that as a compliment. That that's because they, they trust you and they appreciate your feedback. Yeah. So what do you think is your biggest challenge right now in your, in your business? So the biggest obstacle or challenge? 
Well, there's a number of challenges. Uh, one is I'm a, you know, I'm kind of a one-man army. So it's it's hard, you know, if I push on one lever over here, I have to pull on another lever o- over there. There's I still have the same amount of hours in a day as yeah. everybody else and it's, you know, I have to focus my attention on getting things done that I promised to people. I'm I'm very uh, one of those people that if I say you're going to have it on Tuesday, you'll probably have it Monday night. Mm-hmm. You know, so I try to stay in integrity with that. And I have so many things that I want to do before the day is over. So yeah. it's a little of a focusing problem, which is why I went back to strategic coach and joined the 10X program. So yeah. uh, I, I'm really starting to learn the who, not how, uh, and starting to bring in outside help to do some of the things that I'm bad at or don't want to do. Yeah. And everything's a trade-off, right? We're trading one thing for another, and we we got to focus on what, what what our skill set is, what we're really good at, to make the most impact. So, do you think there's a question that I should have asked you before, or would you like to expand on anything that you said earlier? No, I I think we've really covered a lot of ground, Chris. I I can't imagine we've we've been talking as long as we have. I mean, this is a soup to nuts, A to Z. Uh, you know, yeah, you, you got the 360 of Randy Fox. <laughs> And if people w- would want to learn more about you or contact you, what's the best way for them to do that? Well, we have my website, twohawksconsulting.com. Uh, there's actually a place if you want to find a time to talk. There's a scheduling link. You can schedule a 15-minute call or a 30-minute call. Uh, Randy at twohawksconsulting.com is my email address. And who I'm would around. be, who are, I? what do you think is an ideal client or a partner for you? Well, I work with attorneys, financial advisors, and CPAs for the most part, and typically it's in a in a client situation where there's a some tricky problem. Normally, it's tax motivated, so there's somebody liquidating a business, liquidating real estate, liquidating a concentrated portfolio of securities, and that's kind of the opening gamut. Uh, and then whether it becomes a larger engagement or just uh, how do we fix this problem, uh, but that's often where we start. Okay, great. Yeah, fantastic. So, Randy, listen, I want to thank you for taking the time to be here with me today. You've been a fine guest and a true pleasure to host. And we've been here with Randy Fox. And a special thank you for tuning in to the Confident Retirement Podcast, brought to you by LPF Advisors, where we are raising the retirement confidence of everyday people, one show at a time. Thanks, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks, Chris. You've been listening to the Confident Retirement Podcast with Chris and Mark from LPF Advisors. For more information on them and retiring confidently, please visit lpfadvisors.com. If your ears are pleased and your mind is now at ease, do share the program with your friends and subscribe wherever podcasts are found.